Good morning, a reading from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Her name is not question mark, by the way. Let me pray for us as we prepare to walk through this passage. Father, we thank you for the book, the letter of James, and we pray that this wisdom from above that comes down to earth and into our lives, that it would shape us and impact us, encourage us and help us to persevere in hope and in love and in faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We know that so often the joys and the trials of life are intermingled and uh, they come to us and they come at us, sometimes simultaneously. On the positive side for us, our fifth grandchild was born this past week, Thomas Jack Gastel. And uh, he's home well, he's doing well, and the mom's doing well. And uh, a friend congratulated me, and he then said, but is the world ready for another Tom Gastel? <laughs> uh, time will tell, actually. And there are only two of us as far as I know. So again, positive blessings in our lives. But on the negative side, uh, most of you know that I have had a lifelong kidney disease that I am working through and soldiering through. And though to be a bit technical here, my, my creatinine has held uh, in the high threes for about three years now, really defying the odds, which means my kidney functioning has been at about 21%. Well, right about the time my grandson was born and I was working on this message downstairs on a Saturday, uh, uh, you know, dealing with trials and these types of themes and also recording a podcast on 1 Peter 4, I looked at my chart, which is all the numbers, and my creatinine went up to 412 and my kidney functioning plunged to 16 in the span of a few months. And I said, well, gulp. And then I said to myself, okay, preacher, it's time to apply this teaching. And as I left the church parking lot, my head was a little heavy and I remembered what James said in this passage. And so, friends, these trials, these are nothing new. They just replay themselves in our lives and through our, throughout history. And so James, who is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, writes to his fellow Jewish converts, but also Gentile converts, those who had trusted in Christ as their promised Messiah, and he actually refers to them as the dispersion. And in this sense, it seems that the 12 apostles were representing, as it were, 12 new tribes so that the church forms the new Israel. And so James is speaking to the dispersion 
those Christians who were spread out across the land. Now, scholars think this may refer to Christians being separated from their true home in heaven. And as such, in that dislocation in this world as resident aliens, as 1 Peter says, we sometimes face significant trials. And so following a very brief greeting, James heads straight in. And as one translation says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, friends, I have quite literally needed this reframing and training in my life this very week. And I know that you do as well. And so today we are going to look at what we face, how we respond, and what God is up to, what God is doing. First, what we face. Well, James says, when troubles of any kind come your way. Notice it's not if, but it is when. There's an inevitability that comes with living in a fractured world that trials are going to eventually come. And the verbiage here, the, the words imply that so often these experiences are unwelcome and unanticipated, whereas others we know that they're coming. Now some of our problems are self-induced. We may catastrophize our problems at times way beyond the scope of what they are. Or we're simply, as the saying goes, sometimes our own worst enemies. I think we're all guilty of that at times. But other challenges are bigger and they are common to the human experience. They are inevitable, not if, but when. So 1 Peter 4 says, don't be shocked when ordeals come like fiery trials as though something strange is happening to you. See, there is much Christian teaching now and there was then that if you follow Christ, you're going to be immune from the trials of life. Well, we know that's certainly not true. And so suffering is not foreign or alien to Christian experience. We, like everyone else, we, felt we face medical or health challenges, relational breakdowns that break our hearts. We've just been through a series on forgiveness, and, and we know as a church that there are sometimes you know, relationships that are old with, with extended family members, perhaps, that are still somewhat strained, even though we try to seek peace. We face natural disasters, and something we don't think about a lot here in Orange County, I think, we face the, the trials of crime. Friday night, we got a call from a neighbor who said, are your doors locked? Go lock them. So I went and locked them, and then we went upstairs and watched out the uh, bedroom window. There were three po police officers in our neighborhood patrolling the neighborhood, and we began to figure out what was going on. A house at the end of the street, we could see all the police officers' flashlights. They were patrolling and searching a house. Well, over time, we found out that uh, uh, an older lady who lives alone up at the corner of the hill, that somebody climbed up the back from probably El Toro Boulevard, pried open her fence, busted open her door. And she heard them, she yelled, and then she called the police, and thankfully she, she though very rattled, uh, is okay. 
Uh, they sent the crime lab out. Uh, it was really something. Uh, and I was reminded that we, you know, again, we think that these things never happen to us, but they can and they do. And also, some of you have probably heard uh, that this past week, we, we lost two giants of the Christian faith. Uh, just a few days ago, as I was working, I saw an email that announced that Pastor Harry Reeder, the pastor of a very large PCA church in our denomination uh, in Birmingham, uh, that he was killed in a car accident. And uh, it was a tragic ending. It was not expected. And then, of course, uh, many of you know that Tim Keller also the next day went to be with the Lord. One of you actually said with, with a sense of humor this morning, there's quite a PCA gathering in heaven this week, which is a good thing. Um, but I think that the passing of Tim Keller brings up an issue just that uh, I think that as we face much resistance to the Christian faith in our time, I think a lot of us saw Keller as a person who was, you know, like a bulwark standing against the onslaught of secularism, presenting the Christian faith in a very winsome and persuasive way. I talked to my son about this, and that was actually his reflection. And I said, you know, in a way, it's almost like he's, he was Gandalf standing against the Balrog, telling the fellowship to go on. And my son said, Dad, he's not Jesus. Good correction, good correction. <laughs> But perhaps a, a sheepdog guarding the sheep um, under the watchful eye of the great and good shepherd. And so, again, we see these unexpected and sometimes expected tragedies that, and losses that we all face in individual ways and collectively, and we face it as the church. And so whatever you are going through or will be going through soon, we sometimes feel overwhelmed, and we wonder how are we going to keep going. I could go on and on cataloging the trials we face. We don't need to do that. You know what they are. And so I want to look now at how we respond. James says, consider it all joy. Some translations say pure or unalloyed joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. For you know, this is the reason, in other words, because you know that under pressure, your faith is revealed and refined. Now, it doesn't say that, but I'm going to get into the latter clause uh, of verse 3 and 4 at the end. James is not telling us so much how to feel, but he's actually telling us, notice how to think, consider, esteem, think through your trials. Even as your feelings are despairing and, and you're hurting. And we need to acknowledge the hurt. As one scholar has said, James does not command us to wear our happy faces so that, uh, that so many seem to think are required in church or in other Christian circles. Dear friends, when troubles come, it is good and healthy and Christ-like to grieve. The prophet Habakkuk, looking at the sadness and the injustice in his world, cried out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you 
will not listen or cry to you violence and you will not save. There is a place, friends, in the Christian experience for grieving and lament. And I'm often reminded that we have a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's right there. And so I want to add that this church, this space, is a safe space for you to bring your sorrows and to shed your tears. And sometimes we will need to do that. Sometimes we have a lot of crying to do. But the point is, James is saying that even as you grieve, think through this sorrow as an opportunity to rejoice. Not in the trial, but in the fact that God is doing something in you through them. And sometimes in hindsight, we can see God's providential hand beginning to mold and to refine and to chisel us into people that we would not be apart from the suffering that we are going through. And ultimately, this is the long view of heaven that we will have when we look back to see all the incredible things God did, even through and especially through our trials. Now, there are secular corollaries to this message, of course. You see it at the gym, no pain, no gain. Um, you hear it in, in another way, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But one comedian said, his dad said, yeah, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And he said, yeah, but not everyone makes it into that second category, right? Uh, and so what James is saying here, his teaching is vastly different from the secular frameworks that are so common in this world. You see, secularism at its core, at its defined root, it means that this life is all there is. That this span is all we've got. And so therefore, if you lose your health or a loved one or your riches or your kidney functioning or you have a horrible car accident or your house is broken into, if it's bad enough, you may be tempted to say and to conclude everything is lost. And why wouldn't you think that? The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell said, destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system results in the unyielding despair of the soul. There's an honest man. If this world is all there is and all we face is a cold emptiness and oblivion, how could we ever rejoice in our trials? But James, along with all the Bible, on the other hand, says that God is present and active and providentially and lovingly overseeing our trials. So friends, though God is not explicitly mentioned in these two verses, he is absolutely present, and he is present in the letter. And what James is giving us is not a bare command, like that happy song went, don't worry, be happy. Everything's going to be all right. Well, from a secular viewpoint, we can't say that, and that just puts more burden on us when we don't feel happy. But this is rooting joy in the fact that God is in the middle of it. 
And he is lovingly overseeing what we are going through. And so that brings us to the, to the reality of what God is doing. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith and the word testing is actually a, really has a double meaning with trials. So your trials are a kind of testing. We know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And the word there for endurance means remaining under. And so it's saying that God forges our faith into patient waiting as we are under the pressure of the trials of life. And we see this in Christians who have been shaped and matured through hardship. And I'm not sure any of them haven't gone through these trials of life. The 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon was a man who had a lot of trials. I've talked about it many times. Others have as well. Uh, he faced hostile criticism from fellow Christians, sometimes in in letters and in the newspapers uh, in England. Uh, he, he had trials in his own church. His, his own church, actually, there was a fire during a service and people died uh, in that church building fire. Additionally, uh, Spurgeon had severe physical ailments and Nowadays, as we look back, it seems that he had probably severe clinical depression. He would go into a room at times and talk about crying for days, sometimes unexplained sorrows. And yet as we think of those trials, we wonder, how did he, somebody like that, acquire so much wisdom? He was one of the most colorful preachers ever to have um, gone into a pulpit, and Spurgeon said, simply, affliction is the best book in my library. Now, that's not a book I, I look forward to reading, <laughs> but I have to, and so do you, and we read uh, that book more than once throughout our Christian pilgrimage. It means that God is graciously training you and me in the school of affliction. Now, let me make this very clear. James is not implying that awful experiences magically morph into something that's really pleasant or fun. Not at all. Horrific tragedy remains just that. But instead, James is saying, learn to see God's good providential hand in the midst of trial. And suffering we know is one of the main reasons that people lose their faith. I have seen people do that. Folks who are on fire for the Lord, but horrible tragedy hit their lives, or maybe even mild tragedy, and they said, I'm out. Because the thinking, as we know, goes like this. If God is loving and powerful, then how could he allow this? And since he did allow it, he must not be loving or powerful or both or either. You see, many have left the school of suffering and affliction bailing on that and have left as agnostics and atheists. And so we understand this impulse 
to fixate on the why. Why? God, what is your hidden purpose? Why did this happen? When God, on the other hand, seems more interested, at least in this point, um, maybe not in heaven, but at this point, he is more interested in what? What? That is, what kind of people you and I become through our hardship. And so the, the formula really is like this. Because God is loving, he will form your faith and your character and mind through trial. Again, another man who was not unacquainted with sorrow, Martin Luther wrote, men and women will never become great in theology until they become great in suffering. We can't get this through reading books alone. We have to read the book of affliction in personal ways. And so Paul says, we therefore esteem it a joy when trials hit, not because, again, awful events magically become pleasant, but because of the good work that God is doing in us through that hardship. I said it was Paul, it's James. <laughs> James sees that God is providentially weaving our suffering toward good ends. And so look at verse 3. James says, for the testing of our faith produces patience. You could say perseverance, steadfastness, fortitude, staying power. He then says, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it run its course. Let endurance finish its work in you that we may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. And so we rejoice in the face of trials because God intends to build in us a firm faith that is genuine and true so that we may come to our telos. That's the Greek word, a variation of tell us that we may come to our goal and that goal is maturity growing up in our faith in the school of affliction and so friends suffering is an opportunity to gain the most valuable thing on earth a faith in in communing with our god a faith that is mature a faith that goes through the process and develops in the spiritual journey that God has for us. And when believers respond with the confidence that we have in God, He is growing us in Christian character. You see, trials test our faith, and they make us in our spiritual pilgrimage whole and sound and grown up. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, trials and suffering have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Some of you may know about the uh, process of making Japanese pottery called reku or raku, raku, <laughs> Um, but in that process, they take the, the potter takes uh, pottery and superheats it. 
And then they take that superheated and, and fresh uh, vase or whatever, and they insert it into a metal trash can in which they burn all sorts of trash, and in, in particular newspapers, you know, with colored pictures and so forth. And you look at it, and what's coming out of that trash can is ugly smoke. But eventually, out of those trash cans emerge um, plain vessels that now are unique, that have been forged with the imprint of the burning newspapers. Some of you might adjust what I'm saying here when you talk to me at the door. You know more about this than I do. Uh, but the point is, God is working in us like we are clay pots. And friends, sometimes we feel like we are stuck in the can of smoldering ashes. And we don't know what God is up to. Now, sometimes he snatches us out of the fire. He heals us. He, he preserves us in, in horrible car accidents and so forth. But other times he uses fiery experiences to transform us into beautiful vessels. Someone has said that hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destiny. I wish there were another way, but friends, this is the school that we have to enter and graduate from. And of course, this is the road that our beautiful Savior, Jesus, walked himself. He was trained in the school of affliction in order to become our qualified Savior. Hebrews 5.8 says, although Jesus was the Son, he learned obedience from what he suffered for us. And then later in Hebrews it says, run with endurance the race of faith, looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And so Hebrews 5 says, he underwent suffering to be prepared to be our savior. Hebrews 12 says, he endured the suffering. He got into the trash can with the burning newspapers, which is the judgment of God for our sins. And he came out as the vindicated Savior, marked by that experience. And he did it all for the joy that was set before him, for the victory that was set before him. He graduated with flying colors. Well, in closing, I think uh, in the past few days, we have had, and the world has had, such a tremendous example of this passage in the life, in the ministry, in the teaching, and frankly, maybe most importantly, in the dying of Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller. It's been so clear that it, it hasn't been about him. I, I was trying to count all his books last night. I stopped at 25. Um, it's not about him and his legacy, but about the Savior that he adored. And it became very evident to those who knew him and those who don't, but watched from afar, that his faith grew stronger and sweeter as his cancer grew more brutal and devastating and painful. He went through the refiner's fire and it got hotter 
but his faith became sweeter. And so again, I think of what James says about this, and we'll see this in a few weeks, down in chapter, or rather chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, and the pressure remains, but he or she keeps going, holding on to the Lord, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised for him or for her. A beautiful person comes out of the fire of affliction. And so the night before Keller died, there was such a beautiful testament of his trusting in his God, putting his life in the hands of his Savior. And my whole family, we were um, texting and uh, talking about it with each other. He wrote, I am thankful for all the people who have prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time that God has given me, but I am ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. That is a man coming under the pressure of the trials of life and God bringing about a beautiful result, receiving the crown that God has for him. And so, friends, may may we endure with that same mentality, that same trust, knowing that in the school of affliction, in the trash can of the fires of life, God wants to forge us in and through our frailties and make us more and more like Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus who entered the school of affliction, who learned obedience. Though he was the perfect and is the perfect son of God, he had to take on our humanity, our weaknesses. And he went through that school. He got into the trash can as a beautiful vase and was burned and took on all the dark and difficult things of our sin and your judgment. But God, he emerged victorious. And so now we call his scars the beautiful marks of redemption and faithfulness, endurance and patience, trusting you, Father, all the way through. And God, we thank you for other Christians who have gone before us for Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, and now Harry Reeder and Tim Keller, folks who remain faithful under all the pressure. And in their living and their teaching, and especially in their dying, they put their lives in your hands and they remain faithful under fire. God, may you help us to be that way. Forgive us, forgive me when we take on the mindset of Bertrand Russell and we think that the world is just cold and vast and empty and we just scream out and wonder why it's all so meaningless and we are missing the point. Forgive us for our 
tendencies toward agnosticism. And help us to trust in you. God, I pray this for each and every person here today, whether it's medical, relational, psychological, criminal, or societal, whatever trials we are facing, may we consider it all joy. Because we belong to the one who went through it for us. We belong to you in life and in death. And it's Jesus, in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.